You are listening to the podcast When Life Gives You Lemons, presented by me, Emma Levy. Having worked with elite athletes for most of my career, it's always intrigued me that a significant number of high-performing individuals have encountered some form of adversity earlier in their lifetime. My fascination into this grew when I had my own brush with adversity when I was diagnosed with breast cancer in May 2020, in the midst of the global pandemic at the age of only 36. During this period, I questioned whether it was my positive mindset or maybe something deeper, which enabled me to bounce back and to train and compete for a triathlon just one month following completion of all active cancer treatment. The goal of this podcast is to explore this concept further by meeting a variety of high-performing individuals who have experienced adversity but who have come back stronger. Today, I'm welcoming Sir Trevor Phillips to the podcast. Trevor is currently the presenter of Sky News' flagship weekend programme Sunday Morning. He's a businessman and journalist winning multiple awards over the years and previously was the twice-serving chair of the London Assembly and the founding chair of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. He was knighted in 2022 for services to equality and human rights. I've invited Trevor on the podcast today to talk about mental health, which is a subject he feels passionately about following the tragic death of his daughter Sushila in 2021, following a long battle with anorexia. Firstly, do I call you Trevor or Sir Trevor? <laughs> the rule in our household is that um, titles are only used when accompanied by a horse and a damsel in distress. <laughs> so um, Trevor's fine. Thank you. Um, so I went to school with your daughter, Sushila, and it's funny when you see the parents of your old school friends, um, sometimes you want to revert to that childhood self, but I'm going to try my hardest to act like a grown up for <laughs> the duration of this conversation. Um, I firstly, I just wanted to start by saying how sorry I am for the loss of sushi. Um, like I said, I went to school with her and I have such fond memories. We used to do sport together um, at lunch times until about year nine, I think, when we were 14 and suddenly she stopped coming to sport. And looking back on reflection, I wonder if that was when she started to become ill. But at the time, I didn't really realize that. Um, but I, I do have really fond memories. I remember her beaming smile. I remember she used to give the best hugs, hello and goodbye. Um, and we really used to laugh a lot. And I can't imagine what it must be like for you guys to to have lost her. So I really am really very, very sorry about that. Thank you. Thank you for that. And um, yeah, I mean, I remember those days. And I think the way that we think about it now is that we were fortunate that she was with us for the length of time she was. Um, because you're right, uh, it's hard to know with this particular illness when it starts, if there is such a thing as an actual start. Um, but I think we know that she was troubled um, from around that period when she would have been 12, 13. Yeah, yeah it's very young. I'm, I'm going to come back to the article that you wrote in The Times about your need to speak out on mental health. But I just firstly, I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about you. Um, because I think you're very well known within the British public. Your voice is recognised, I think, in many households. Um, however, I'm not sure how much you like to talk about yourself or how much you do talk about yourself. But when I was researching you, it seems like you had quite an interesting childhood. You're one of 10 siblings. Your parents moved over from what was then British Guyana. And I wanted to ask you, how was your childhood? Well, I think like most ch children, um, I, I remember my childhood fondly i suppose that you would now say that it was rather an odd childhood but in fact 
not that unusual for the children of uh, immigrant parents. Um, my, my family came here in 1950. The principal reason was that, well, the, the principal, if you like, proximate reason was that my uh, oldest sister, who is was 90 this week, actually, uh, wanted to be a nurse. And uh, she couldn't train at what, what we would call at home, that most Guyanese, most West Indians refer to the Caribbean still now as home. Um, she couldn't train there, so she had to come here and she went to Glasgow. Uh, she trained also in London hospitals, spent some time in Paris, actually. But I think the underlying reason that my parents moved was because um, my father, who was quite left school at 14, was quite an ambitious man, was disappointed because the routes to, if you like, prom promotion, he'd worked in the docks and got himself uh, promoted and so on. But the routes were blocked in those days, which would be the 1940s. And my mother actually wanted something better for her children. So they got on the boat and they came here. But, you know, 10 children, um, poor prospects, because England didn't quite turn out to be the place that I think they hoped it would be for them. Um, ten children, two rooms, they, it doesn't quite compute. So like a lot of families, uh, they sent some of us back home. Uh, so I grew up for most of my childhood with my aunt and my grandmother in Guyana. I spent four or five years here between about the ages of seven and, and 12, um, but most of my childhood was in Guyana. But the important point, I suppose, is to say that for the most part, I, I never really lived with my parents because my father then died when I was 18. Um, so, uh, and then at that time I was already at university and um, I'd sort of taken a different path. But my childhood, I suppose, would be characterized by Funny that living in a small town with two elderly ladies, uh, my sister and various cousins, because um, a lot of us got sent back there, including cousins from Trinidad as well. And that part of it, you know, it's, it's easy, one can cast a sort of golden light on it. But I think probably it was pretty lovely in many ways. Um, and as a teenager, funnily enough, I... Um, I went to a boys' school, and I became part of a gang of eight or nine, most of whom subsequently have moved to North America. We are all still in touch. If I'm in North America, we kind of gather overnight, drink a few beers. And funny, you were saying um, that one reverts. It's very interesting when we all get together we all revert to the roles that we played as sick formers back then. How did that feel being sent back to Guyana? Was there like a sense of abandonment at all when your parents were staying in the UK and you were being sent back? No, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, truth is, I didn't know any different. Uh, but I think that there are probably two, yeah, there's probably two things. First of all, um, this was the case. I mean, when I first went back, I was 15 months, so obviously I wouldn't, um, 
have known much. And in fact, when I met my parents, I guess, um, at the age of six or seven, it wasn't so much that they were strangers to me, um, because one of the things that I think our families, immigrant families, are very good at is keeping alive the sense of the clan. Um, so I sort of knew them, but didn't know them. And we were, uh, I mean, we lived in North London at that time. Well, we lived in North London and in a relatively, still in a relatively small house with a lot of us. So we were pretty close. So I, I never really felt um, in some way, some way outside of anything. I think that uh, if you're asking, did I feel in the end I missed anything? I think that would come much later. And, and um, I think probably it's something I've only reflected in, on in middle age. Um, maybe I should put it like this. I, I, um, I guess I grew up rather as a, not in some ways as a solitary child. My nearest sibling is six years older than I am. Uh, so, you know, a lot of my life was, as I say, away from my parents in a little village on the coast in Guyana with these two elderly ladies and a sort of shifting cast of, of sisters, brothers, cousins. Um, so I had to sort of make a lot of my own life in some way. And I, I think one of the things I learned much later, or, I, or I've come to think much later on, is that in most families, you get to learn about yourself because of what others in your family say about you. You're reflected uh, by in your brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, and people will make jokes about what sort of person you are and so on. Uh, it, it's rather, I think, for me, not a tragedy, but just something I've I've come to learn, is that I didn't have any of that. So in a way, I didn't really get to understand much about who I was really till quite late in life, mm. probably into my 40s, wow. well into my 40s, because I hadn't had that period of getting to have my character reflected in the eyes of those around me. Yeah, that's interesting. So where do you think you got your drive and your determination from to succeed in life? Oh, well, that, that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty straightforward. And it, it's a word that I think I've used already about 20 times in this conversation. I mean, we were immigrants. And the thing that people, I think, quite miss about most immigrants, because we've got a, a narrative that says immigrants are people basically sad people who are fleeing war and famine and so on. That's sort of true, though it is truer of people who move, for example, to the next door country because there's a war or conflict. The people who get on boats and travel thousands of miles into the unknown, often into places where they're not very welcome, are a different breed. These are the people, these are, odd, these are usually the odd ones. They're the people who, in the village, who look around and say, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I don't care what the risk is. I'm going to take it. 
And I think what I discovered, again, I didn't realise this until quite late in life, that's what my parents were. And in, incidentally, it is what my grandparents were as well. My grandfather, who I never knew, my maternal grandfather, I never knew, um, disappeared when my mother was a teenager. And he disap- the reason he disappeared was that, a lo- like a lot of West Indians at that time, um, they would go to America for work. And the conventional thing was a century ago, they'd go to work on a Panama Canal or they would go and pick cotton in the South. But a smaller group of whom some of my family were got on boats, went to New York, and um, my great aunt got off the boat and she then went to live in Harlem. My grandfather, we think, jumped off the boat and swam ash- probably swam ashore, then disappeared. We never, no one ever saw him again, except that in recent times, what we've discovered, and here's a, something I think we haven't, I, I've never really had the um, reason to talk about publicly. We, we've recently discovered him um, in the records of the um, American army. He joined uh, a, a regiment which became known as the Harlem Hellfighters in the not in the, but in the aftermath of the second, First World War. Um, so, funnily enough, this is somebody that we only know through history. Anyway, the point about all of this is that we are a kind, we're an immigrant family who basically are a bit restless, rather ambitious, and I think if you were to talk to virtually any member of my family, of my generation or the next generation, and I suspect of my grandchildren, they'll be the same kind of people. So you think being an immigrant in the UK that time gave you that drive to succeed? It's part of drive to succeed, by the way. But it is also, um, if I may say so, something that you might be familiar with, Emma, which is uh, the insecurity of being in a society that you're never sure really likes you. Yeah. yeah. So do you remember experiencing racism as a young boy when you were in the UK? Yeah, but you know, well, I'll just preface it by saying um, that the reality of racial prejudice is that you, you can make a tremendously spectacular thing about, of it, and it's unpleasant, and in some cases, as we know, it's murderous. Um, by and large, though, what it is, is a sort of daily drip of exclusion, a lot of which you don't notice. So, for example, I had, uh, when I was at school here in England for those few years, I had... Um, like you know, boys are always in a gang. Uh, there were four of us, and there was one boy whose house I never went into. Actually, I was never conscious of it particularly, but I learned. I, I looked back, and I realised that his mum would always call him in for tea, and unlike 
other boys, I would never get into that house. My sister, um, and this is, I think this is much more hurtful, when she was 16, 17, a person she thought of as her best friend had a birthday party, didn't invite her. Now, why that was, no one can be sure, but I suspect that was really because her family didn't want my sister in the house. So, uh, you know, it, it's part of um, one's everyday experience, and sometimes it can be hurtful. Quite a lot of time you don't notice it, actually. But I, I would also say, by the way, that one of the things in about this country is that um, differences of ethnicity are... They're not always obvious, and they're not always a bad thing. And as a child growing up, I don't think we always would have noticed them. I mean, on the one hand, I suppose it's probably fair to say I would be in fights because of it, because, and I'd get called names and so on. It's a little bit of that, you know, well, that's, that's the way it works. That's what people do. That's it. In a way, that's their problem. It's the way we think about it. But uh, there are other things that, in a way, I, I don't want to say I recall them with pleasure, but I, I, re I call them with a sort of a sense that there was a different way of thinking about racial difference, which isn't all negative. I, I remember my, my sister recently told me that she would go to piano lessons on Saturday morning. And quite regularly, not every week, but periodically, a lady whose house she would pass would be standing on the step and would ask her to come in and light the coal fire. Well, why would you do that? Um, and honestly, what's the, what is the thing? And a child being invited in? Of course, we now know that these were, these would be extremely orthodox Jews who wouldn't do anything like that on a Saturday, on a Sabbath. So they would look for the nearest person mm -hmm. to, you know, whatever it is, turn on the lights, light the fire and so on. And the child, and it was okay for a child. And I, I, in a way, in a funny way, I, I think back on that and I think that's a kind of good world of difference, isn't it? I know it's not an answer to your que your question about racism, but I I think when people talk about um, the racism of those days, and I you know I don't want to underplay it, underplay it. My father would say uh, to us that when he first came, he would walk the streets looking for somewhere to stay because you know people wouldn't have black men in their boarding houses and so on. Um, my sister, as a nurse, would say, would tell you that there was no question that um, they were regarded as somehow skivvies, the black nurses. Um, she then be went on to become a very distinguished nurse and run a hospital and so on. So there's no doubt that those first days were, were very cold. But the reason I don't like to overstress it is that 
if you if you make that story purely one of what people did to us, what you forget is the resilience and the courage and just the sheer grit of our parents and our elders who faced all that down, got on with their lives and made a success of it. Yeah, so you've kind of taken that positive mindset towards it. Um, but do you think any of those racist, well, those potentially racist behaviours drove you towards your work in equality and human rights? In my own particular case, I would say that um, the fact that I ended up where I ended up was uh, probably for a different reason. It, 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 I mean, it's worth saying that I started life not in this sort of territory at all. I was, I was a chemist mm. and an engineer. Totally different. Well, it's a different sort of world, though um, I was talking to somebody a couple of days ago and, and it occurred to me that the point about being an engineer is that what you're constantly trying to do as an engineer is literally that, engineer the world so it works for you, works better for you. And there's a sort of, maybe there's a sort of temperament that says, and this is probably almost certainly my temperament, is there a problem? How do we solve it? Is there an equation that will help me find a solution to this? Is there a fix? Um, so I don't think that I, you know, I'm, I'm not a kind of natural, if you like, race equality warrior. I think probably I came to it much more as, oh, there's a problem. Shouldn't we fix it? Um, that's one thing. But the, the other thing I, I guess I would probably say is that I came from growing up in a country which was historically impoverished for partly by colonialism, but actually much more by the fact that it is an ethnically divided society in which um, essentially a kind of tribalism has meant that meant that we were never able to take advantage of our natural resources for the simple reason that people would rather see things go to waste than cooperate with people who are of a different background to them. And, uh, you know, if you really want to look at, see an object lesson, a uh, way a divided society um, can impoverish everybody, Guyana is a fantastic example, until recently. They've now discovered oil, so now everybody's going to be incredibly, it's going to be the richest small country in the world. But um, until five or six years ago, it was uh, one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere and purely entirely because of racial division. So probably it's more driven by that experience than anything else. Yeah. Okay. Um, right, I want to get on to talk about mental health. Um, so you wrote an article in The Times in June of this year where you wrote that your daughter's death gave you a new mission to speak up on mental health. And you wrote that Sushi recorded a one-hour testimony on her phone. Um, and you believe that she was setting her family a mission and that you now have a job to do. And I'm just going to read what you wrote. You wrote, her preoccupation was what she called the fear that keeps the mental health system paralyzed. How do you expect the situation to get better if you don't do everything you can to make it better? So I wanted to ask you, how are you seeing through this mission? Thus far, um, 
Not as well as I would like to. It's a very difficult thing to get your arms around. Um, uh, first of all, I mean, you, you knew Sushila, and she was a rather charming. That that charming is such a weak word. She 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 had the quality of making people like her want to be on her side uh, actually um and i'm i'm grateful to your uh, the way you described it at the beginning of this conversation um but i think she was probably also quite bossy and um that came through in later life even to the in her last 24 hours uh, as i described in the article she um collapsed in a shop somebody uh, administered CPR as it were basically literally brought her back to life and she looked around and said who told you to do that um so her video to me was pretty much by way of instruction she'd spent a long time in the mental health system and her feeling was that though there were wonderful people in it the system itself was poor it wasn't responsive. The people who were closest to uh, patients were not as well trained as they might be, however well intentioned they were. And uh, she also felt, as do I think a lot of people who are in that in the system, that um, patients were not listened to, uh, and that quite. A lot of the time, uh, had they been listened to, um, they their problems could have been resolved or at least ameliorated to an extent. It's probably worth saying that I, I, I came to the view that the parts of the system, or to put it in more brutally, the condition that she endured as the seventh circle of hell. I mean, if anybody who has been in um, some of the acute eating disorders units will know the minute you walk through the door, you can, you can smell despair and you know that you are in the presence of death. Um, and I think what she wanted to say, if I, if I were going to summarize it, is that most of us, most of the time, want to avert our eyes. And why wouldn't we? Because it's, it's awful. You know, and I'm walking down the street with her. She looks like a skeleton. She frightens children. Um, and that's objectively truth. It's not that they're bad people or their parents should teach them to be better. Uh, frankly, I got we got used to it, but she was a walking skeleton. And I think what she wanted to say is for some people at the extreme end 
of mental illness. Um, life is hell. And the rest of us should acknowledge that. And that would be the start to at least find starting to find ways out of that hell for some people. Uh, the, the particular condition that she has, um, you know, whatever people say, the truth is nobody really understands it. There isn't enough science. Um, I think there's an awful lot of nonsense talked about it. Uh, you know, families get blamed and so on and so forth. The truth is we just don't know. We really don't know. And I think her view was that uh, the first two things we can do is have compassion and understanding for those who are suffering it. And secondly, be honest with ourselves about how little we know um, and be ready to speak honestly about both of those things. So my job, I guess, uh, is to basically to go around saying what I've just said. I'm not an expert. I never, I'm not a medic. Um, I'm no longer the parent of a child with this illness. Uh, but all I can do is talk about our experience and perhaps make it more uh, frankly acceptable for everybody to talk. I, I, one of the things I've been really struck by is that since I wrote that piece, the number of people are, for whom I, I had, who I know, who I had no idea had a similar experience, who spoke to me about it. And that I think in itself is telling. The fact that people I know well, who knew that I had a daughter who was suffering from anorexia, never spoke to me about their own child's suffering. And maybe that's a place to start. And I think that's probably what she was trying to tell me to get yeah. on with. So basically opening it up for conversation, more people acknowledging it. Um, but also, like you said, we don't understand enough and we don't have enough science. And do you think, do you think that's a funding issue? Oh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's partly, um, you know, scientists, there's something scientists won't do these days because they're thought to be stigmatizing and so on and so forth. But actually, I suspect that if there were more money available for study of the condition, and God knows there's no shortage of cases to study mm. now, as far as we can understand it. I read 1.25 million people in the UK have anorexia, which is quite staggering, really. And, and of course, the thing is, for many people, it's a transient condition. But there are things we don't understand. For example, what makes it not a transient condition? You know, the, the, uh, the, you will know this. There were, would have been girls at school with Sushila who went through their phase of eating disorders, but for whom, in a way, it went away. And we don't understand what makes the di difference between that and what happened to, to Sush. 
Um, that would be a start, understanding that. We don't know whether this is biological and physiological or whether it is a psychological and emotional state. And if you don't know that, how, how can you ever actually begin to think about what remedies are? So part of it is, is money. I think part of it is also, though, purely will. There is no, I mean, there are some people for whom, um, how I'm going to try and put this as straightforwardly as I can. There are some people who will claim mental health problems because there's a kind of veneer of, I won't say glamour, but something special, specialness for some people, particularly some people in the public eye, to be able to say, I have to look after my mental health issues. Well, to be honest, quite a lot of the time when I hear that, it does make me furious because nobody who is really in the grip of a serious mental illness ever says that. Yeah. Certainly not in that way. Separating, isn't it? The it is at, in one, some way, if you've, if you've actually met somebody, and I don't mean somebody who is at Sushila's extreme, but even some people who are, who are seriously ill, who are helpless and despairing, do not know what to do, don't even really know what's wrong with them. That is a whole different kettle of fish from somebody who faces uh, a low mood, difficulty in their lives, which, to which I'm sympathetic, but I think that should not be mixed up with the situation of people who are truly in the grip of demons. Yeah. Uh, and ag yeah. again, you know, it would be a good start if we could at least have that conversation. Because what then happens is you get into this, I think, rather unpleasant thing in which somebody says, I went through this and I recovered. And nobody will ever say this out loud. But what they mean is, I was strong enough or smart enough or clever enough to recover. I feel so sorry for somebody who didn't have my strength of will or their friends or the family who would support me. And of course, that's not the difference at yeah. all. Yeah, it's something big. You're, you're tempting me to go to places where I don't, don't necessarily want to go to, but it's, it is an aspect of, of this which does make yeah. me cross. And with these soaring rates of um, eating disorders and things like self-harm as well recently, especially since the pandemic, what damage do you think that social media and things like TikTok are having on that? Oh, well, I think there's no question that they, these are, you know, I'm never going to blame social media. I think, you know, these technology is always a tool and we can use it, not use it. We can constrain it, not restrain. But what is absolutely clear is that it's amplification and um, it has amplified some unhealthy trends. I think uh, I've come around to the point of view, I didn't start here, but I've come around to the point of view that when people say they're influencers, 
they genuinely are influencers and sometimes their influence is baleful you know it's one thing selling a cardigan it's another thing making cutting your arms feel like it's the answer to something so i think social media you know that has provided uh an accelerator for something which has always been the line i mean it's worth saying from our my point of view my daughter suffered before she became before social media yeah. turned up you know she was copying other people's illnesses in various ways long before she had a, a mobile phone so i'm not going to blame social media but what i will say is that it's put something that we experienced on steroids yeah and i just want to read something else you said in the article that i found really interesting when you said it's hardly surprising that young people are anxious and depressed with the worsening economy the environmental activists warning of climate catastrophe um etc etc um but you know what can we do about this how can we give young people the resilience to deal with life because we talk a lot about resilience on this podcast but how are we giving the young people the resilience to deal with all these difficulties that are arising well i think i think we've got to do two things one is we have to be um transparent we've got to be open um, and that means, coming back to something that I said a moment ago, not being simplistic about travails. I mean, sometimes we just have to be honest with people and say, I hear how you feel, but you will get through it because actually that's what human beings do. And I think we, uh, what is happening now, particularly in the public sphere, and I'd say this to many public figures, don't polish the problem. There's nothing heroic about being a casualty of mental health. It doesn't make you attractive. It doesn't make you glamorous. It makes you a victim of mental illness. So I think the first thing I would say is with young people get let's help people get things in perspective. Let's remind people that most of us most of the time do get through these difficulties. All of us are low, all of us are, have difficulties. But there is strength in every one of us. And if we can't find those strengths, there are often people around us who will help us find them. That's what families do. That's what friends do. So I think talking, and but talking in a positive way that is not about how, just about how bad I feel, but how can I get out of this is important. And I think the second thing is that, I guess in a way where we began, because you asked me about whether I'd experienced racism, and I guess in a long and rather rambling way, I said, yes, I had, 
but I'd also experience kindness out of difference. And I think that there's a responsibility on public figures, not just to describe the world as a dark and dystopian and depressing place, but also to talk about the things that do that that make us better people and also to remind people that actually we can make things different you know if i come back to that point one of the things that really angers me is when people say uh you know during the black lives matter period uh year when people were saying it's never been as bad as this, it's worse. This is a terrible racist country. It's never been as awful as this. And I want to shout, talk to your grandparents, you know, talk to the grandfathers who like my father had to said, I could not find anywhere to lay my head at night. Talk to my sister who said, who said, I was the best in my class, but I wasn't going to get promoted. Talk to people who were beaten in the streets. And then ask yourself whether, though we know some of those kind of things happen, in those days, that was natural. That was the order of things. That's what people thought was okay. Today, Nobody thinks that's okay. And think to yourself, is it really worse than it used to be? Of course it isn't. So maybe one of the things we just need to say to people, uh, and that this is incumbent on people like me, we have to have the courage to say, stop feeling sorry for yourself. And by the way, don't do down all those people who struggled against that racism. Don't do down all of those people who, you know, I think about my, my friend Marjorie Wallace at Same, who 30 years ago wrote for the Sunday Times and started to bring the issues of mental health out. And people would say, this is a bit embarrassing. Why do you want to talk about, you know, this person? Why would you get somebody to talk about their nervous breakdown? Because nobody will invite them to dinner parties anymore. I think people just need to grasp that we do make progress as a species and we make progress through people struggling, talking openly, throwing the light on things that have gone wrong. And every time we say it's all so terrible and it's worse than ever, what we're doing is disrespecting those people who have made the world better. Um, I mean, I feel very strongly about this. I think that particularly, I, th I think there's a baby boomer thing that we failed, we failed in a way to tell our children, now our grandchildren actually, that it is worth fighting to make things better because actually our experience in our lifetime is that that is how things change. That is why we live in a richer, healthier, better world than we did 
two generations ago. Sorry, I'm going on, but you <laughs> yeah, know no, what I no, mean? No, it's, 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 uh, no, it's really good. It's a really refreshing outlook to hear and actually really aligns with my values. And it's what I try and tell my kids all the time. And I also really believe, really, really strongly believe that we do all have strength within and we just sometimes need to try and find that strength. Um, thank you, Trevor. I know you need to you need to rush on, but thank you, thank you for talking to us today. Um, I really do appreciate you taking the time, and I can imagine it's probably not easy to talk about Sushila, but I do imagine that she is looking down from somewhere, and she's probably laughing, and she finds it hilarious that I have her dad on my podcast. <laughs> so thank you. Oh yeah, she would be. Well, you know, she had that sort of slightly mordant wit. She she'd be, I I'm trying to imagine she she'd be looking down and she'd be saying, "Well, you never said all that while I was alive. <laughs> why didn't you, you know? Exactly. You know, why do? You, how come you're saying it to Emma? Exactly. Why don't you say it to me?" She'd be going, "No, thank you, Emma. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much. Really nice to see you as well after all these years. <laughs> thank you. Cheers. Mm-hmm.